We're going to be taken back to the late 1960s, to that exciting and turbulent and often misunderstood time in our recent history, uh, with a memoir written by one of the most uh, important voices uh, to be heard at that point in time, a very gifted writer by the name of Richard Goldstein, with many different books to his credit. His new memoir called Another Little Piece of My Heart, My Life uh, of Rock and Revolution in the 60s, uh, focuses primarily on the several years in which he wrote about rock music for the Village Voice. And he was associated with the Village Voice for, for many years beyond that. But this, is, uh, this memoir focuses primarily on those first years when he was doing something that virtually nobody else in America was doing. That is, writing seriously and analytically uh, about rock music, taking it seriously in a way that uh, the, the typical music critic would, would not have even thought of doing. And... Uh, and in doing so, and in doing that writing, he also came to know some of the most important luminaries of that uh, of that era, uh, chiefly Janis Joplin, but also uh, Jim Morrison of The Doors, uh, Brian Wilson, uh, John Lennon, uh, Bob Dylan. He, he met many of the most important musicians of that uh, exciting time and uh, writes very perceptively and, uh, and vividly about what those years were like, and ultimately about the the profound disillusionment which he started to feel about the direction that rock music began to take as profits became uh, more and more of a, of a guiding force, and, uh, and in his views, robbing it of much of its uh, essential strength and, and, and importance. Again, the book is called Another Little Piece of My Heart, My Life of Rock and Revolution in the 60s, published by Bloomsbury. And Richard Goldstein, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Very nice to be with you. I am really excited about this opportunity, even though I have to say I'm more of a uh, Verdi, Zaida, Haydn, string quartet kind of uh, music fan. Uh, oh, I, love, I love those people. I love Haydn, especially the quartet. Ah, that, very that's good. another life. All right, there you go. So anyway, but I, so, I, so when, I, when I read a book like yours, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly learning things I, I never knew about uh, musicians who are important but whom I've not taken much personal interest in. So uh, I think somebody who uh, loves this stuff from the beginning will, of course, love your book. But uh, even for someone like me where this is relatively uncharted territory, it's really a great book to explore. So I'm, I'm glad Thank we you. can talk. Uh, talk for a moment about the uh, experience of looking back over really quite a long period of time, uh, back to the late 60s, and uh, just what it felt like to try to relive those, those years as, in a sense, vividly and viscerally as, as, as possible. I mean, first of all, do you view those years profoundly different than you experienced them in the moment? Well, sure. Um I, I, it's hard to look at the present without filtering it through your own youth, and my youth was in the 60s. And I teach uh, a, a college course in the 60s as well, so I'm constantly being reminded of the decade and looking at my students and thinking about how they are and aren't like me. Um, in terms of reliving the experiences, uh, it was hard, very hard. I had to sort of wring it out of myself uh, over many drafts. Um, and I'm sorry. Do you to... mean do you mean hard in the sense that it was hard to do? I mean, it was difficult, or more that it was painful it was pain- and unpleasant. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was painful because uh, the first emotions that come to my mind when I think of that era are the painful ones. Then, uh, as I think it through, I see that there was also a lot of pleasure and joy and discovery, self-discovery. I think I really forged myself during that decade as a person. And so did the country actually forge itself as a new country during the 60s. But uh, it was not an easy birth uh, for me or the country, you know. Um, and so when I thought back on it, I felt uh, the uneasiness very vividly. And then, you know, I, I was a, a very shy, nerdy kid meeting all of these luminaries. So it was very embarrassing. And, uh, you know, I, had to, I think that the definition of being honest in a memoir is you have to be willing to embarrass yourself. <laughs> and that took many drafts, you know. At first I wanted to be a hero, and then I realized I was a nerd. I was a nerd. So, you know, anyone who goes to my website is going to see pictures of me where the nerdiness is inescapable. <laughs> so, you know, not that there's anything wrong with being a nerd, but, uh, you know, if it's you and you look back on your youth, it's difficult. So there mm. so are all these personal reasons, but also mainly social reasons, why um, the, the sort of the difficulty of giving birth to the United States as we know it uh, was pretty evident to me as I sat down to write. In addition to being, as you term it, a... Uh a nerd, there was also something else going on in terms of, 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 of who you were. Well, a couple of different things. Um, one of them, something you ultimately came to terms with, is the fact that you're gay. Um, at the time, uh, what was your level aware of awareness about your own sexuality? You came out at some point in the 1970s. As right, you were wait. doing this work, were you fully, uh, fully aware of your own sexual orientation and... Uh, to some extent, comfortable with it, even if you weren't uh, sharing it with, with the rest of the world? Well, no, I wasn't aware of it. Uh, I mean, I was aware of, of sensations uh, that I felt toward other men, uh, you know, of an erotic nature, but not my sexuality. I was married. Uh, I got married in 1967, and I was married. Uh, it was not a fiction of any sort. It was a real marriage. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, was, I liked women very much. And uh, so I thought of myself as having sexual feelings toward men that maybe could be enacted uh, in brief encounters, but that you couldn't really... It was impossible to find real love with a man. So... Um, I was with women at that time primarily, uh, and so uh, in my writing, you know, there was no real reason to connect my identity with my sexuality as I know it today. It's very hard to explain this to young people, I think, because mm. it's a culture where you can much more easily come out. Right. I also, in those days, you know, it literally was not in my consciousness mm. uh, the way it is now. And so, uh, to, just to go on for a second, sure. the music, ever since I was very young, was the way I expressed my latent sexuality. I projected it onto the music and saw in those rock stars the sexuality that I had within me. Hmm. And when I saw the fans, the girls, screaming and yelling over them, um, I was very moved by this, and I identified with the fans. So, essentially, I came at the music as a nerd, but also as a fan. Hmm. I've always wondered... Um I think when, when some of us who weren't, weren't really full-grown adults at the time, I mean, I was born in 1960, so I remember the 1960s, but I didn't understand the 1960s at the time. Uh, but, but, we, but, but when we look back at, the, at that whole counterculture 
phenomena. One of the things that we sort of imagine is is sort of the power of love and love conquers all and and if you feel it, it's just fine. And uh, you you look for love where wherever it plops into your lap, and and mm-hmm. and discarding a lot of 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 old ideas about how you go about love, how you pursue it, who you're supposed to be in love with, and so on. And you sometimes wonder in a, in such a freewheeling environment, uh, what what's a young person to do in terms of sorting out who they are? It seems like that was exactly the kind of environment where where in, in a sense the last thing you would it would occur to you to do is sort of analyze who am I, who am I attracted to women more than men, whatever. I mean, just seems like, yeah, well, I, I mean, I couldn't help but be analytical. It was just part of my general self-consciousness. But, uh, in terms of, I learned, especially in California, actually, uh, to let go of that and just have the experiences and the hippie ideology, which I have a lot of respect for, um, really emphasize the meaning of experience. So the question of what you were never entered the discussion. There were no real questions about gayness as a separate identity or straightness, bisexuality, genderqueer. All of these terms that are very, very powerful today did not really exist in the same way. And the map of sexualities was much more fluid than it is today. Right. That's very well put. And, and in a sense, one of the things that the counterculture was all about was the discarding of labels. Yeah, which were very strict when I grew up. And any, any girl or woman who had sex outside of marriage uh, was immediately labeled a slut. And women were not supposed to have desires except for love. And so, uh, you know, for women, I mean, the idea that you could just uh, respond to somebody based on what was called the vibe um, was a revelation and uh, a necessary one. Because this straitjacket that women were in was really, really unhealthy in, in so many profound ways. And so the main difference between the 60s and the era before that was that more women had sex. As many men had sex, but more women did. And they, were much more, they had much more agency in sex. Feminism emerges from the unleashing of female desire in the 60s. And it becomes political over the course of the decade. But it begins with an unleashing of desire, especially because pregnancy could be avoided. The pill came along in 1960. And so, you know, that, that permissiveness really emanates from, the, from the, the nascent liberation of women. Mm. I was liberated, too, mm. along with them. We're speaking with writer Richard Goldstein about his memoir called Another Little Piece of My Heart, My Life of Rock and Revolution in the 60s. The, the other matter which uh, we should talk about, aside from uh, the fact that you were a nerd, as you describe it, the fact that you also happened to be gay, also, you were from the Bronx. Uh, you were, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think sometimes the term is a, you were a bridge and tunnel person. Yeah, bridge <laughs> and, and tunnel people, yeah. Well, yeah, and anybody from the bridge and tunnel boroughs of New York is immediately sort of déclassé. It's, it's completely, lo- it's looked down upon. It's a certain type of vulgarian. And uh, that was me, you know. And I grew up in a housing project. I had the M&M upbringing of its time, which is maybe a little more health- wholesome in those days. But nevertheless, you know, I sang doo-wop on the streets of the Bronx as a teenager. Um, I'm, I'm Jewish, but I sang with mostly the Italian boys. They were the ones who were the great singers of the neighborhood. So that I learned from them this enormous feeling of solidarity that music could produce in young people, when you, especially when you make it together. So even though 
you know, essentially we pretended to be black, you know, as a lot of white kids did and still do. Um, the solidarity was there in the music. So, and I loved girl groups. You know, the girl groups of the early 60s, big hair, fierce moves, the Shangri-Las, you know, the motorcycle crash in the middle of their music, the lightning bolts in Walking in the Rain by the Ronettes, especially the Shirelles, these black, very sinuous black women singing this wonderful music. For me, I was completely turned on by this. So later in college, I became a folky, but I always kept the, the sort of sound of this music within me. So hence, folk music and rock were very close for me. And when Bob Dylan plugged in his guitar in 1964 and began to play essentially rhythm and blues with artistic lyrics, uh, I could relate instantly to that shift. Hmm. It was not such a shock for you. No, it was natural. It ah. seemed inevitable that these things would come together. Why? Because Bob Dylan was an educated rock fan. Okay, this is the first generation after the Second World War where working class people were widely educated in state universities. And so an, a generation emerges, a very large one, that is better educated than ever before in American history, but they don't have the elite sensibility that they would have if they'd gone to Yale or Harvard. So their music is rock and roll, uh, but their education is in Western literature. So they put the two things together and create a hybrid. That hybrid is rock. Rock and roll is a college, is a high school dropout. Rock goes to college. That's the difference. <laughs> one more question about the Bronx. You yeah. say at one point, I'm from the Bronx, but not of it. Yeah, you know, that, that's because, you know, in addition to all the sort of wonderful passion and loyalty and warmth of those people who I grew up with, they were also very violent and racist. And uh, I experienced their racism very vividly because I was in the civil rights movement when I was in college. And there was a race riot in my neighborhood over an employment campaign that I was part of at a White Castle hamburger stand. And so I, I witnessed people getting shot and, and, you know, boards flying through the air and all of that. I saw very clearly their racism. And it, it really appalled me, of course. And it, and it completely, it, it physically nauseated me. And that, combined with... The feeling, uh, the experience of going downtown to rock shows, you know, in Times Square and places like that with my, say, with my black friends and being chased off the streets by the police, which never happened when I was with white people. Um, this made an indelible mark on me so that I entered the 60s as a really almost physically uh, appalled person when it came to racism. And so that's, you know, seeing their racism... Uh, and the confinement it produced in them. Um, these were people who hadn't even been white 50 years before. You know, they became white in the course of their parents' lifetime. And so the absurdity of this was very clear. And, of course, rock and roll is a music of miscegenation. And so all of this leads to the creation of a new world in which these racial hierarchies are revealed for the absurdity that they are. And that's, that's the reality that, that I came out of. This is why I, I was alienated from my roots. From the roots in the world, Bronx. A new, yeah, a new, right. A new world was being created in which the sort of the fictions of race were being critiqued. And rock and roll, rock music is a giant part of that because black performers become front and center in rock music. And black music itself becomes the fulcrum of all American popular music 
in the 60s more than in any other time. Hmm. So this is a very important period that generates American culture as we know it today. Multiculturalism emerges from the 60s, along with feminism. Hmm. And also tofu dogs. (laughs) They also are a product of the 60s. (laughs) Every time you bite into a tofu burger... You're experiencing the 60s. Wow, and something about it. (laughs) Do you remember the first time, the very, very first time you essentially escaped the Bronx? Uh, I mean, what was it you did and saw and heard in that first encounter that drew you back so powerfully again and again and again? Yeah, I write about this. Um, I hope I've never fully escaped because there's a lot that has to recommend it. But, um, I, you know, I couldn't wear sandals in the project because the, the, other, the other guys would step on my feet. This was considered a treason. So I had to wear sneakers, keds, in the project. But I kept my sandals in a paper bag, and I would go down to the village. It t- took an hour by subway to get to the village from where I was. And then I would take my sneakers off and put the sandals on and go to a part of the village called McDougal Street, where bridge and tunnel, alienated bridge and tunnel college kids hung out. And it wasn't the sort of arty part of the village. It was the sort of mob, you know. And there were these little clubs, little folk clubs, with pictures of beatniks in the front. And in these clubs, one heard folk music, and one could make folk music. And this is where I first saw Bob Dylan, in one of these little clubs uh, down around McDougal Street. So there was a scene of young people who were coming from the outer boroughs and who congregated around this music that wasn't rock and roll, it was folk music. It had a different set of values, it was more upwardly mobile. And this is also true of rock critics, because three of the most important early rock critics, uh, myself, Robert Criscow, and Ellen Willis, all came from the outer boroughs of New York and were the children of civil servants. They were working class. So rock music and rock criticism both come out of a, a rising working class, uh, of the of the mid sixties, it's just very important to understand that this is cultural, but it's also a social phenomenon at the same time. They both come together in rock, and you can hear this in the music very clearly, because it's cultural but also social. Hmm. When and you its ambitions are global, ultimately. Hmm. When you uh, write about those uh, early experiences at uh, uh, McDougal Street, uh, you write this, in this swarm of guitars, I will find the first incarnation of what is not just a new life for me, but a new era for my generation, a time of sex and drugs, of revolution for the hell of it, and most important, music. Music will be for us what it always is for youth, a way to know you're not alone. Yes, that is what music is today. Now, you have a music scene today with so many genres you know, that it's very difficult to imagine music playing the role of unity that it did in the 60s when music was a kind of tom-tom for an entire generation. And the same songs would be playing out of every window as you walk down the street. Everybody listened to the same 30 or 40 records. But now you have, you know, ghetto goth, ballroom house, you have, uh, you know, bounce music, and these are just some of the newer genres that have come along. There are dozens and dozens of them. And even though there's a tremendous amount of good music for young people to identify with today, there isn't a single idiom that everybody holds dear. And Michael Jackson is maybe the last performer whom everybody really listened to uh, as an artistic force. 
And even with Jackson, there were people who felt him that he was too slick. So the idea of a record like Sgt. Pepper or, some, or Dylan's Blonde on Blonde or Highway 61 Revisited, any of the great records of the 60s, Tommy, you know, all of those records, um, this is something that literally ties every person my age together in the same experience. So it's an enormous oral stadium in which all young people assemble, and not just Americans, but all over the Western world. And in all of those countries where music played this unifying role, revolutions broke out. And disruptions broke out as this force of young people confronted patriarchal and often irrational governments. And this happened as much in the communist countries as it did in the West. And I went to uh, Czechoslovakia in the 60s and saw this happen among young people there behind the Iron Curtain, where the government was irrational. You had to be licensed to be a rock musician in that, in that country. And, uh, you know, that, that this was a really impossible system. Um, and they were rebelling against the same forces of patriarchy, uh, if I can use that buzzword today. It's a real thing, though. You know, it's, it's a hierarchy of males, and often very irrational. And so there was a rebellion going on across the, the world that this music embodies that spirit of rebellion. It is the communicator of the rebellion against the old and the, and the forging of the new. Mm. So it's in the music itself. You hear it in the very sinews of the music. If you don't know this music well, just listen for that and you'll get it. Mm. We're speaking with Richard Goldstein about his memoir called Another Little Piece of My Heart, My Life of Rock and Revolution uh, in, in the 60s. Uh, I'm really struck in your memoir by how you talk about some of these important new friends you made, uh, misfits in, 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 in one sense, you say, and, and yet uh, friends that utterly sustained you, and, uh, and how such interesting things would 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 make a deep impression on you. For instance, a lot of these people were the first people you'd ever known whose TV wasn't on all the time. Well, they were I mean, communists. They, <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were filling their lives with all kinds of other things. Yeah, uh, they had modern art on the walls. They had Danish modern furniture. We sat on the floor and sang songs and guitars. This is not... My mother had fake French provincial furniture with plastic on it. And uh, a lot of avocado in the house, and the TV was always on. We talked over it. It's kind of like a scene from Annie Hall, where, you know, the Jews sit around yelling over the television, you know, uh, and that's what we did every night after night. Uh, that's working-class life in the 60s in New York City. Uh, whereas the communists, they were, you know, better educated, actually, and, and they were very beleaguered people um, in, the, in those days. And uh, they didn't, so that's how I was introduced through them to this broader culture um, and this other way of living in which uh, the chatter of Milton Berle did not play a major role. <laughs> I also want to ask you about uh, an observation that you make about your childhood, because I think it maybe helps yeah. us understand what you stepped into in the next period. You said, for much of my childhood, I thought of myself as a TV network broadcasting my experiences. Nothing seemed as real to me as entertainment. Yeah, I was basically my own HBO <laughs> before its time. Yeah, well, my my father, you know, was a postman, um, and he would he would take these art journals would come in and these theater journals, and then he would rip off the address. So it went to the dead letter office. Then he brought them home to me. So I read all of these magazines that you couldn't find at all in the Bronx. 
Um, and I read all of these cultural journals, and he just stuffed me full of culture, even though he didn't really know what it was. Um, and so that really uh, fed me in many ways, and he really fed my, uh, my creative instincts. Um, and then I discovered literature as an alienated kid in the project. I was the only kid who sung doo-wop and read James Joyce, and I really fell in love with James Joyce. I credit him partly, along with my friends, with really saving my sanity. I mean, I lived in the world of Ulysses uh, for a whole summer while sitting on a beach in the Bronx with, you know, chicken bones in the sand and condoms floating in the water. I mean, these are memories that are really are very Bronx, you know. Uh, so I had both, all of, this, all of these forces were operating within me. And then this drive from my working class mother pushing me ahead. She thought communism was upwardly mobile because, you know, for her, these communists were all going to become doctors. And so if I was hanging out with them, I might be a lawyer. <laughs> and that was her, you know, greatest ambition. I should be, she was horrified when I decided, I told her I was going to be a writer. She said, be a lawyer, you can defend black people. She was trying desperately to get me to follow the route of upwardly mo upward mobility as she understood it. But my father fed me culture. And so you can see the combination of forces that positioned me to play the role I did in the 60s. So it didn't just come out of the blue. It came out of my entire background, politically, culturally, and emotionally, hmm. sexually too, of course. One of the... Uh first bits of serious writing you do about some of the music you were experiencing, I believe, uh, uh, came right around the time that, that the Beatles first came to New York. In, in, was it 1962? I think probably 64. Ah, a little bit, little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, I mean, it, it, it got me thinking about uh, how timing is everything <laughs> and uh, how fortunate that you came of age just at the time that you did when yeah. some of these world-changing artists uh, first came to prominence, and you were there to witness it, and, and very early on felt prompted to write about it. Oh, yeah, because I was a writer. You know, I was writing obsessively and reading literature obsessively, so it was just a question of how to apply the techniques of those books that I loved to a phenomenon like music, which nobody had thought of doing. But it wasn't as if I had a plan for success or that I studied this deliberately. These were just things operating within me that I put together. But the Beatles, of course, had the same, exactly the same background, except that they were from Liverpool. But they went to a red brick university, which is a city college in England, and I went to a city college in New York. I got a free college education from the city of New York. Um, and, uh, so, and they studied uh, you know, design because that's what they were sort of oriented toward in terms of success. But they really were artistic in many ways, and they had artistic ambitions. Lenin, of course, had literary ambitions, and eventually produced a book of poetry called In His Own Right, W-R-I-T-E, hmm. which is really pretty good. You know, he was, he was devoted to Lewis Carroll the way I was devoted to James Joyce. Hmm. And these people, you know, had, were, were young intellectuals, but they were working class, and they wore leather at first, until they met richer people like Brian Epstein, their manager, who gave them their suits, or the artist, <laughs> the woman from uh, Holland, who gave them their hair. Uh, they didn't know any of that stuff. All they knew was the driving power of rock and roll. But when they met these artists and these higher-class people, then they were transformed by them into something more respectable and more ambitious. And this is not, you know, not very different from me meeting the editor of The Village Voice 
1966 and saying to him, hi, I want to be a rock critic, and him looking at me in a kind of hustled way and saying, what is that? <laughs> and I didn't have any answer, of course. I just had to try it. So that's, you know, that's, it's the same kind of encounter that the Beatles had with their manager, Brian Epstein. Hmm. And it was a time of enormous social fluidity in England as well as in the United States. And this social fluidity, which the civil rights movement played a major role in unleashing, uh, this social fluidity is what creates this music. Because almost everybody who made it went to a state university. There are not a lot of wealthy people making rock music. So this is very important. You're talking about a, a product of a social era that is very different from the one we have today, where there was much more class fluidity. And, of course, it leads to sexual fluidity, cultural fluidity. All of these fluidities come from the fact that people were moving up, that the working class was moving up $10,000 more in salary by the end of the decade. This makes an enormous difference in the culture of the era. So when the people talk about the 60s, it's not just beads and bangles. It's class mobility. Hmm. And if we're ever going to get class mobility again, it may happen again. Now, if you want to hear a little more about why that may be, it's because it's embedded. The spirit of the 60s is embedded in American history. It's been there since the great awakenings of the 18th century, which were abolitionist religious movements, since the transcendentalists. It's very, very much the spirit of Emerson, Thoreau, and Whitman. If you read on Civil Disobedience by Thoreau, you're seeing the very basis of all the protest movements of the 60s, and even today, of course. And if you read Whitman, you're seeing the sexual politics of the 60s. And for Emerson, you know, my giant walks beside me. Now that's, that's pure 60s. Hmm. It's, it's the me decade, but it's Emerson. So all of these things have been in the air. You know, they came up in the jazz age in the 20s and in the beat period during the 50s. These mystical new ways of life, radical new ways of thinking of existence. This is an American tradition going all the way back. And so it could happen again if the economic situation permits it. And very interestingly, it doesn't today. Hmm. So if you don't want to know why it's so difficult for young people to imagine the 60s, the economy puts them in a vice that makes it very hard for them to aspire to a more radical existence. And to the extent that they do so at all, it's very, very brave of them, hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. We should, spend, we should spend just a, a, a little bit of time talking about your actual encounters with some of these important musicians and the extraordinary experience of, of, of getting to write about what they did. Uh, ahead of that, you, you actually say at one point that you were writing about rock music, but that you yourself hardly knew anything about music. I suspect yeah, no, you're being. No, I right. suspect you're being uh, maybe just a little more modest than you need to be. But, uh, ah, but I don't know. I'm not a very modest person. <laughs> I mean, but, I mean, I, you know, I listened to it avidly, but you know, no early rock critics knew, knew music. I, I don't think no, the musicians didn't know music. I mean, I don't think uh, that uh, you know the Ronettes knew anything about theory. You know. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't think sonata form figures in. You know, right. it, it's a, it's a much more. Uh, it's coming from the gut. It's coming from the groin. It's coming right out of the body into the audience, and it's a gender show. You know, I mean, and and those things, you know, are very for me. That I was an English major, so I knew about lyrics. The music affected me viscerally, 
And what I really knew about was the awe that I felt on the presence of these people. So when I interviewed them, I could barely get any words out. <laughs> you know, if I had like two questions, you know, that I could ask. And, but they basically took over the interview. Right. And, and then they so I think they were very natural. The whole culture of honesty that existed in the 60s meant that they, they, were, they acted very naturally around me. There were no press agents, okay, no publicists in those interviews. I just hung out with them, and they just behaved. And uh, I wrote it down, you know, in, in my own shorthand on my lap. And uh, so I got to see them exactly as they were. And I learned, you know, that in order to avoid being considered straight, which in those days did not mean heterosexual, it meant normal. Like the times would have been the straight press, you know. In order to be considered part of the counterculture, I had to get stoned with them. Hmm. We, getting stoned was the first step in the interview. It was more important than setting up the tape recorder. And so I did, you know, and I have all of these floaty notes that I took, you know, <laughs> uh, because that's, that was part of the ritual. And we all got stoned together. And then we hung out for days. You know, I toured with Big Brother and the Holding Company. <clears throat> I watched uh, Jim Morrison record. For him, alcohol was the drug of choice. Not the only one, but the one that I saw him use a lot. Uh, and then, um, you know, I watched, I sort of sat in Brian Wilson's teepee with him in Bel Air and got stoned with him and his, went out to Palm Springs and they all did acid together. Um, and, you know, these experiences uh, were just part of my life. It was part of the bonding. You know, drugs can be a bonding uh, instrument. That's why when marijuana comes along as a cultural drug, it's passed around. It's not something solitary. The idea of passing the marijuana around shows you right away that it's meant to be a bonding right. And the dealer is your friend. It's not some kind of businessman, you know. It's, a, it's your friend. So these are very big differences from the traditional drug culture. And uh, you can see that, uh, that all of this was about unity, about coming together as a generation. And so seeing these rock performers uh, act all of their fragility on the surface and then watching them do it on stage, I can't begin to say what a powerful experiences these were, having actually seen them up close and seen how close they were to the performances they gave. Hmm. Um, how real those performances really were. No artifice at all. No, hmm. no, no, other than being transported by the crowd and the music and all of that. They were themselves. So if you listen to a song by the doors, they're in the studio. Everybody is playing together. They're not playing in little bits and pieces on different channels with synthesizers, you know, and beats being added. They're all playing together. It's a live performance in the studio. And that's it's a really distinctive sound. Same with the Grateful Dead. And, and you know, Janis Joplin, when she was on stage, it was a, it was a rite uh, uh, in which she eviscerated herself in the context of blues music. And that's really what blues is, of course. It's a self-evisceration as well as a self-liberation. And she really embodies that entire tradition. So when you listen to Janis Joplin, you're listening to Bessie Smith with the drive of Otis Redding. And that's actually how she described her music to me. She studied Bessie Smith. She added the technique of Otis Redding. And then you have Janis Joplin. And then she added her own emotional crisis on top of that. So that's what makes her what she is. And there's really, that's, a, that's why it's unique. Hmm. It's real. Real and unique are related. 
I've seen in several interviews uh, where you are asked this next question, and that is, uh, what about the the whole business of of wanting to write seriously about these musicians and yet becoming so close to them? And uh, weren't you, in effect, endangering the whole notion of of sort of objectivity or neutrality, if we want to call it that, right. uh, in 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 assessing them? I mean. And I've, I've, in in every instance where I've seen that question posed to you, you you answer very unequivocally that uh, neutrality and objectivity was just not in the mix for you. That 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 was the farthest thing from your mind. No, I didn't think it existed. I had been to demonstrations, civil rights demonstrations, and then peace demonstrations, witnessed things, especially from the police, very brutal. Police were very brutal. Um, and uh, then I would read the next day in the paper about the demonstration, and I would read how the demonstrators were ugly. Um, this is actually, I remember vividly reading these things, and no mention of the police brutality, just the arrest numbers. Uh, I remember reading uh, in the obituaries, if uh, there was a bus crash, uh, the names of the white people who died were given, and then they would say, and 12 colored people died as well. In other words, their names weren't even in the article. I mean, these were the experiences I had and that convinced me that, in fact, objectivity was a myth. It didn't exist. And so what you were getting was an institutional point of view uh, masquerading as reality. So to me, I went back to the Walt Whitman ethic of writing, and he says, I am the man, I suffered, I was there. And to me, this was my motto as a journalist. I want to be the person who suffers and is there. And that's what I'm going to write as. I'm going to be an individual telling you what I saw and felt. And so that was my goal. And now you, when you read the stuff, you can see that it's subjective. It's revealed. You know, yes, I'm a human being. I'm an individual. I'm not an institution. And this is what I think and feel. Hmm. To me, this is more reliable because you read a lot of individuals with different points of view. You're more likely to come up with the truth. And if you just bury yourself in Fox or the liberal equivalent, MSNBC. Sure. I guess the, 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 and I understand that perfectly, I guess the one question I wonder is, if somebody, if you become incredibly close to a given performer, at some point, does that start to completely change the way in which you take in their music? I mean, could you end up liking what's actually a really pedestrian song because you just like the singer so much, you feel so close yeah. to them? That I mean, that would be the only danger yeah. I can see. Yeah, you mean as a critic as right. opposed to a reporter. Yeah, right. sure. I mean, but on the other hand, I made plenty of mistakes, you know, <laughs> without that. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, yeah, I, I was close to the doors. You know, I respected and admired them greatly. Then when I got their, their album very early on, and I was one of the first people to review it, and I gave it a rave review, I said, it has one weak song on it, Light My Fire. And, you know, this is you know, one of my many bloopers as a critic. I mean, the reason is that the lyrics aren't as exciting as some of the, quote, poetry on the other songs. So I didn't relate to it very well. Uh, obviously, it's a classic of the 60s, and I made a, a number of mistakes like that, including panning Sgt. Pepper. And I've told you how much I admired the Beatles. But when that album came out, I couldn't really place it. It's not rock and roll anymore. Hmm. And it isn't avant-garde music either. It's, what is it? You know, <laughs> it's, it's not Oklahoma. It's, it's, where does it fit? Yeah, it defies it description. <laughs> it doesn't fit, because it is a seminal work of postmodernism. 
and the word itself hadn't been coined. It wasn't coined until 1973, I think. Hmm. And it's French on top of that. So, uh, so I mean, I, I you know, I, for a critic who's, who experiences something so new that they don't know how to judge it, it's very, very hard to say that because it makes you seem incompetent. So critics tend to lock things into their schemas as they exist. And my schema did not permit that album. So I panned it. And, and a lot of rock critics think I was right and prescient. But no, it's a, of course it's a great album. <laughs> and and uh, no, they're wrong. I mean, it, you know, they, they have a, maybe a rigid sense of what rock should be or what mm. music should be. Mm. You know, what is old school? What is new school? What is no school? You know, I mean, these categories are meaningless when somebody makes a really new work that mm. it makes its own terms in terms of evaluation. So the answer is, you know, knowing these people didn't stop me from making mistakes, but I made them for other reasons. Mm. The limits of my own intellectual capacities, not just that I knew them. Mm. So, you know, you can make mistakes in any event. Mm. Uh, a good critic never rests in peace. Right? <laughs> She or he is always reevaluating, mm. as Susan Sontag did a great deal, and she was one of my great models as a critic. I do mention in the book, I took her to her first disco in the 70s, and uh, she loved it. But um, she was a real model for my criticism. Mm. We would be remiss if before we finished up, I didn't give you a chance to really talk at a little more length about the legendary Janis Joplin. She was maybe the artist you were closest to of, of, of all the uh, important musicians uh, with right. whom you really forged uh, uh, important relationships. Um, tell us what you most vividly remember about uh, Janis Joplin off stage and on stage. Yes, her enormous insecurity. I mean, uh, and that's why I think we bonded. We were both People who think that they are grotesque, uh, they recognize each other. And uh, there's a basis for a bond there. And in reality, they may not be grotesque. Um, but if they have that consciousness, then they can pick it up in one another. And uh, I think that's what we saw in one another, and that's why we were close. Maybe we both had also bisexual leanings. That We never mentioned this to each other, but it could be also part of the bond. In any event, uh, I met her before I saw her perform in San Francisco, um, and then I saw her at Monterey. I was actually on my honeymoon, so I saw that amazing performance. You can see it on YouTube. Uh, it's really worth seeing. And then, um, you know, I, I, I toured with them for the better part of a week in the Northeast, and, uh, and then every time, you know, she would call me when she was in New York, and I took her to her first kosher restaurant, things like that. And so we, you know, I watched her at parties. She was always complaining about her hair. She hated her hair. She was, that hair was a model for millions of women in the 60s. But for her, it was this, this burden hanging, you know, from her head. Was a, her own sense of self was in her hair. And she, just, she really was constantly complaining about it and about her features, her complexion, all of that stuff. You wouldn't think that she was so involved with her physical appearance, but she was. Hmm. And uh, she had lots of trouble connecting with men, you know. Um, men were afraid of her. Um, all of these tendencies within her, uh, I think, led to her drug use, which I didn't really know a lot about. I certainly watched her drink. Uh, I've, I'm a nice Jewish boy. To see somebody drinking a pint and a half of Southern Comfort was a revelation to me. Mm. But that's what she did before a performance. Always uh, straight up, 
or in tea because cold is bad for her throat, she said. Hmm. So I, I saw this enormous fragility, uh, and then I saw it uh, uh, magnified on the stage to an extraordinary degree, forcing everyone in the audience to be in touch with his or her own feelings of fragility. And this is the Janis Joplin experience. You share pain and fragility. You share the frustration of falling in love and the fact that it's a ball and chain. You know, you share those feelings with her. And that's a very 60s experience. And so of course, di- mm-hmm. you know, sorry. When she died, um, and I found out about it, uh, I was really devastated. And, and you, you, you say that it actually, in a sense, disabled you as a writer, at least for a time. You, I think at one point uh, said, or maybe in an interview later, said something about suffering what might almost be called an aphasia in yeah, the wake the of her death. The inability to use language is called aphasia. Yeah, I, I couldn't put a paragraph together. I, I couldn't even listen to my records without sort of tears in my eyes, because other people died, too. Good friends of mine uh, from acid, from the effects of acid, you know, who killed themselves, or, uh, you know, I watched, I had watched dozens of people clubbed by the police who looked just like me, dozens and dozens of people in the stories I covered. All of my political heroes had been assassinated. Uh, the country was in flames. 110 cities were going up in flames. Um, it looked like the whole country was falling apart. Uh, it really was the feeling of, of Im- imminent collapse. And then on top of that, my greatest hero in rock, rock music is left alone in a motel room and found in the morning with a needle in her arm. And uh, that, that just devastated me. And it took me s- uh, several years to work my way out of that depression. Mm-hmm. For somebody who had written all of his life as a way to deal with reality, suddenly to be deprived of that was a death-like experience. I can't so, imagine it. I can't imagine having that gift, in a sense, wrenched from your hands at a time you know, when I mean, you probably needed it the most. Yeah, I know. Mm. Well, yeah, that's, that's what happened. And, uh, I think, but I think there was a general depression because at the moment when the revolution seemed imminent, a lot of people realized that it would be really terrifying to do this, and that the country might actually fall apart. And then what would happen? Who would take over? There were these horrendous right-wingers in the military, people who wanted to bomb Vietnam and China. And they were there. You know, we all knew about them. And the CIA was very, very active in the United States at the time. We were very worried about the, whether there would be a right-wing coup. Uh, and then if the left somehow won, who would be in charge? These people, a lot of them were really quite crazy. So... Everybody, including the black community, I think, made a decision to step back from the brink. And when you do that, when you actually give up your revolution because you don't want your country to fail, this is depressing. So aside from all the stuff that happened to me personally, there was a political depression. So I had to cut my hair, as a lot of people did, you know. And, uh, but on the other hand, we were right to, be- to pull back because we didn't want the country to end. We wanted a new country. Mm. And we got it. It's not all for the better, <laughs> but it is a new country. Absolutely. I can assure you it is. The, uh, the memoir, which brings this uh, very important period of our, our country's history uh, vividly to life, is another little piece of my heart, my life of rock and revolution in the 60s and published by Bloomsbury. Richard Goldstein, thank you so much for, uh, first of all, writing such a powerful, provocative book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. This has been a real pleasure for me.
I thank you. Me too. Really wonderful. Thank you.